It's good just to get back into Luke. If you have your Bibles, open to Luke 9 with me this morning. Uh, there's the picture of the women's retreat. No, just my wife. <laughs> she was down there with all the women. They're still there just wrapping things up, and they had a great time. Last week as we, you know, looked at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I kind of picture what what would I have done if I was one of those guys and the Lord suddenly appears. And I kind of felt like they were saying to each other, you, you know, guys, you remember all those times that the Lord said he was going to rise? You think we should have listened a little bit better? And, you know, it's amazing how we're hearing things. The Lord is speaking to us. We're going through the word and things don't quite register to us. But we're in Luke. We were in Luke 24 last week. We're going to go back and pick up in Luke 9. And it was here in Luke 9 where Jesus first spoke to them about the crucifixion in Luke's account. But there it was. They, they went to the tomb expecting to find the body, expecting to just apply some spices to the body of Jesus. And the angels met the women and said, he is risen just as he said. I just love that phrase, just as he said, as if there's some question that the Lord wasn't going to do exactly what he said. You know, when they, when the Lord appeared to them, Thomas wasn't right there in the room with them. They told Thomas that the Lord appeared. You remember what Thomas said? Unless I can see him, unless I can touch him, I won't believe. Sounds like a lot of people we, we meet these days. It was eight days later that the disciples were gathered together in private. They were afraid of the religious leaders. And Jesus again appears and Thomas is there and says, how's it going, Thomas? I think it says that in the Greek somewhere. What's up, Thomas? But it was there that the Lord said to Thomas, reach here your finger and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put, put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but be believing. Now, we, I said the Lord, Thomas wasn't there when the Lord appeared. But when Thomas was saying, unless I see him, he thought the Lord wasn't there. And then it's eight days later. And how is it that Jesus says, Thomas, this is what you asked for. This is exactly the thing, Thomas, that you were asking for. And it's amazing how the Lord is with us whenever we're not even aware that he is with us all the way through helping the disciples to begin to understand what they struggled to understand and ultimately coming to a place of really committing their lives to him. The Lord is patient with me. I look back over the years at the times I said I was committed and I wasn't. I said I was going to do something for the Lord and I, I didn't keep my word. 
And how many times I've made promises to the Lord and I didn't keep my promise. And I've thought he must be sick and tired of me. Tired of hearing me make promises that I haven't kept. And yet the Lord is over and over gracious to me to help me put away my past and to ultimately discover his purpose for my life. It took me a long time. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty slow to learn the lessons. I feel like at my age now, in fact, my birthday's tomorrow, I'll be 32. Now I'm 64 tomorrow. I feel like I'm just learning some of these important lessons. Now I've known them, but I feel like they're, they're just becoming a part of my life in a real way. And I just appreciate how the Lord has helped me over the years in my ministry and even worked in spite of me, in spite of the things that I, I didn't quite understand, the things that I, I was fearful about and didn't trust him for. And you just learn the things about the grace of God. The phrase, what's next, is really on my mind as I think of what was next for the disciples. What he wanted for them, and he knew he would, he would appear to them over the next 40 days. As Luke says in Acts, in the beginning of Acts, uh, showing himself by many convincing proofs over 40 days. And then he would say to the disciples, I want you to wait in Jerusalem for not many days from now, you will receive the promise of the father, which you have heard from me. And that would be the outpouring of the Holy spirit on the feast of Pentecost acts chapter two. Now I don't know your background and all of your church backgrounds. Some of you come from a more of a, Baptist background. I grew up in more of a Baptist church. Uh, my wife came from a Pentecostal background. Her father pastored an Assemblies of God Church in Seattle for 20 plus years. And so we kind of get into these familiar, comfortable ideas about the Holy Spirit. Let me just say that While many of you might be a little bit suspicious of what is this thing about the Holy Spirit, it is what Jesus wants to do in our lives. And we've seen all kinds of things of Christian experience abused, haven't we? But this is the thing that Jesus said, first of all, we would believe on him. And then it was John the Baptist who said, that it's Jesus who would baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It is part of our normal Christian experience. It's not one version of a Christian experience that is for, well, that group over there. Primarily, the, the purpose of the outpouring of the Spirit is to give us power to live the new life. It's not power to make us weird. It's not power to make us uh, do strange things that we're not comfortable with. 
The Holy Spirit doesn't just take over our lives. It is essentially the very thing you want, which is the power to live for Jesus. And if you just think of it, if you don't receive the outpouring of the spirit, how will you live for the Lord? You'll be doing it completely by your own strength. Have you ever tried that? Did it work? Okay, that's enough said. It doesn't work. As much as you might be sincere to say, Lord, I don't want to go back to those old things. There is no way that you are able to live the new life without the power of God. It, it can't happen. Doesn't matter how sincere you are. Calvary Chapel is charismatic in our doctrine and belief, even though we don't look like other charismatic churches. It would just be an emphasis on the love of God rather than the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit, absolutely, we believe, are for today. Do you know that? But the purpose of the gifts is to build up the body of Christ. So the Lord would give each of you gifts, spiritual abilities for the purpose of building up the church and reaching our community. So when I think of what's next after the crucifixion and resurrection, it's Pentecost. What's next is not just to discover the resurrection of Jesus, but then say, Lord, okay, what do you want to do next? I'm thinking of that. I tend to think in, you know, the flow of the Bible as we're studying it together. But I really think of it as we're here in Albany. We're here in the mall. We've had the 2,000 plus people come to our Easter egg hunt in the mall last Saturday. And I'm just saying, okay, Lord, what do you want to do next? And I think there is no way we're going to see the real work that God wants to do without us being open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's just not going to happen. And so you don't have to do anything other than ask. Jesus said, if, if you... If your child asks for bread and you would give your child bread, how much more is our father who is good would give good gifts to those who ask of him? If you, your child asks for bread, you wouldn't give him a stone unless playing a joke on him. But we kind of assume that we, we have to be a little suspicious of God sometimes. The safest place is in the middle of what God wants to do. The safest place. So we pray for, a God, for God to do a fresh work here in Albany. And I, I see the Lord working in many, many ways. And I just want to say, Lord, what's next? Please, would you take us there? Would you take us there? Back in Luke 9, to pick up there... What we saw a couple of weeks ago in our study is that 
That's where Jesus gave the disciples the authority to go out and heal diseases, cast out demons. And that's where they went out and they discovered how God was going to work through their lives. They fed the thousands with a few loaves of fish and the few, uh, did I say loaves of fish? You didn't even make a face at me. You just said, he's so tired. (laughs) A few loaves of bread. My wife tells me those things on our drive home. Did you realize what you said? The few fish and the few loaves of bread. You remember the thousands there at the end of the day, the disciples say, you know, send the people home. And the Lord says, you give them something to eat. He's turning the tables. And instead of just watching, he's giving them the responsibility and says, you, you figure it out. He wants them to take responsibility and to trust him for more than just their limitations and their abilities. And it was after the feeding of those possibly, you know, 10 to 15,000 people with women and children with the little bit of food that they had. They took up, you remember how many baskets full of food that were left over? Twelve. That meant each of those disciples got to carry away their own reminder of their lack of faith. Then Jesus did three things. He asked them for a confession. Remember, he took them to Caesarea Philippi, where the altar to Pan was. I showed you a picture a couple of weeks ago. You might just search for that online. It's amazing. Caesarea Philippi, the altar of Pan. One of the most immoral, gross places. And Jesus takes the disciples there and says, who do people think these people who are committing these sexual acts, who are offering sacrifices to Pan, who do they think I am? One of the prophets. And Jesus said, who do you think that I am? And that's where Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, I am going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell, they believed, was that altar to the god Pan, a place of accessing demons. Not even the most evil place in that area was not going to get in the way of what Jesus wants to do. He asked for a confession. He also then revealed the crucifixion. He said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. That's Luke 9, 22. So as they are coming more into a relationship with them, with him, he begins to reveal a little more and a little more. And thirdly, he asks them to follow his example. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, note daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake 
Or what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and he himself is destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. This is an important passage, what the Lord just says here. If anyone desires to come after me, which I would say that's us. I want to say, Lord, I want to I discover what you have for my life. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, there's three things there, and they have been so misunderstood as to what Jesus meant. And I just want to just give you some simple explanation for those three things. What does it mean to deny self? What does it mean to take up your cross? And what does it mean to follow Jesus? The first one, deny self. To deny self. If you look at the way people live in the world, everything about what they do is for self, isn't it? There's not really an awareness of God. They might even say, well, I'm a spiritual person. But even those people live more like what we'd say is on the level or the plane of an animal. If you look at an animal, they live completely for physical bodily needs. Food, comfort, procreation. I have a little 13 pound Jack Russell named Jack. How clever is that? He's completely content to sit with me and be quiet. Suddenly he jumps up, sits at my feet and stares at me. He will stare at me for 10 minutes. And I'm supposed to read his mind. So the thing is, I can read his mind. I know exactly what he wants. He wants a treat that's over in the jar. And some reason he just suddenly decided it was time for one. Animals completely live for their physical needs. And the Bible says that the man who is not born again of the spirit completely lives for the flesh, as the Bible would say. His comforts, his gratification. And even if he says, and you can see this in world's religions that say they are spiritual and seeking enlightenment. Once you look behind the veil you will find it's about bodily desires, bodily needs, bodily drives. And to deny self is essentially to put spiritual needs before carnal or physical needs. There is no question that we have emotional, physical, mental needs, drives. I need food. But when that drive begins to rule my life, it's distorted. It's perverted. And when we say that something is a sin, it means it is not serving its God-given purpose. Sex would be that way. And people say, well, God gave us this desire. 
He gave us this desire and an intense sexual drive for a purpose. To get married and have children and raise children who will also know and love God in a safe environment. When that good drive begins to take over and operate outside of its design, it begins to hurt us. It harms us. And then it is fallen short of the glory of God. And we would say that good thing that God has given has become a sin because we have put the physical before the spiritual. And we could go down a list of things that are part of the human experience that can, can begin to take over and harm us. And so every one of you should just be watching for those things in your life that essentially nothing's wrong with it until it rules over you. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life you find in 1 John. Lust of the eyes is possessions, what I see. The lust of the flesh is passions, what I can feel. And the pride of life is position. That essentially sums up the temptation in the Garden of Eden. Possession, passion, position. Have you ever said, let's just go walk through the mall. I don't need anything, but let's just go take a walk. How many of you ever said that? Come on, confession. You will get extra points for confessing this. And suddenly, this is me. I go, I'm just going to go walk through the music store. I play drums, play guitar. I don't need anything until I am there and I suddenly see a new guitar. I did not need that guitar until I saw it. I'm perfectly content until I saw that thing. So deny self is to put things back in their place and your life is now lived for the priority of the spirit before the flesh. It might be your ambitions, your drives, all kinds of things. And when you are born again, that's what happens. Now your spirit becomes uppermost instead of the body being the highest priority in its life, in your life. Now you've come into fellowship with God and the things of the spirit are the highest priority. That's quite a big change for people who have come right out of a lifestyle that is all about the, the pleasure and the next experience and we're bored with one experience, and I've got to chase after another experience. But ultimately, we all know chasing those experiences are never satisfying. There's a thrill, and then it goes away, and then I'm bored, and I have to find another one. And ultimately, that inner contentment is satisfied when we come into relationship with the Lord. Deny self is to stop living for my pleasure, my possessions, my position. Take up your cross. This is a hard one. It's a bit of a riddle. 
Have you ever heard someone say, well, you know what? I'm married to somebody who is really difficult. I guess this is just my cross to bear. Fill in the blank. It could be anything. Somebody, man, my boss is so difficult. It's just my cross to bear. You ever heard people say things like that? That is not what it means to take up your cross. That is not what it means at all. And that means like Jesus is telling you to do something that really is not good for you. You just have to put up with it. If you look at Jesus, you would say, what was his cross? Literally, his cross was the cross. But the reason he went to the cross is because that was his very purpose for being born in this world. He was doing the very thing the father sent him to do. And he said that. The cross was redeeming your life. His purpose was redeeming me and you and the world. John 3.16. So his cross, your cross, is your calling, your purpose. It's the very thing that we're all searching for. We're saying, Lord, what is your purpose for my life? And I've shared this a few times we are sure that if we can ever discover it, suddenly we will find peace. We won't have stress. We'll just be happy all the time. Was the cross of Christ happy? No. And yet the book of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus willingly went to the cross. Your cross is what the Lord has called you to do. It is the very reason you were put into this world. It's not some burden to endure just to say that you're a martyr and everybody can admire you for it. Every one of us has been given gifts or talents. There's talents you're born with, like a, a musical ability or some other kind of natural talent. And then there are the spiritual gifts that are given to us. But even those natural talents that you have, you can use them for you. Or you can say, Lord, how can I use this ability I have for the Lord? It was a struggle I've shared that, that I went through back in my mid-20s pursuing a, a career in music in Southern California. And honestly, the closer I got to it, the less satisfying it was. I absolutely hated the emptiness of being around the music business. I hated it. And I thought, how can the very thing I love be so unsatisfying? And it was, a, it was a moment of crisis in my life. And my wife said to me, as all good wives say, what would you like to do when you grow up? And I said, you know, the only other thing that I think I'd like to do is the ministry. And as a good, encouraging wife, she laughed at me. 
because she couldn't see that happening. But there was something in my heart. And from that moment, the Lord began to redirect my life and took the very thing I was born with, and he began to use it for his purposes. For his glory rather than my glory. Your cross is a decision for you to make. It's not forced on you. It's not a burden. Like, do I have to do this? And in fact, you can be born again and do your own thing in this world. Now, as a pastor, I'm not supposed to say that because you might just go off and be selfish. But actually, I know the Lord loves you too much to just leave you alone to go do that. If you sit here week after week, and if I've done my job at making you miserable, then you will be reminded that you really want more for your life than just to live for your glory. It, it just doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't accomplish anything. Deny self. Deny self-gratification. Take up your cross. In John 15, Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another. As I have loved you, and greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. We all love this, how people make sacrifices for others. They lay down their lives. We admire it in other people. Lord, just don't ask me to do that. The love of God is sacrificial. But you're willing to do it when you see how the Lord is directing your life. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Deny self, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. And that means ultimately I'm going to then go where he sends me. I will confess I never expected to be in Albany. What am I doing in Albany? I pastored a church in Portland for 23 years. I never expected to leave California because, you see, if you're born in Southern California, you think the entire world revolves around the sunshine and the beach. And then the Lord got me out of California and had me pastor a church in Portland for 23 years. And as many of you know, I do a lot with assisting other churches. A couple of weeks, I have to go to Georgia and Tennessee and meet with pastors and do some training there. So that's a lot of fun. But then the Lord says, I want you to pastor this church in Albany. I'm going, what's in Albany? And the more I was here, the Lord said, that's where I want you to be. Going, really? He goes, yeah. And just to make it a little easier, I'm going to put a coffee shop in. See, because I'm just that shallow. And this is amazing to be here and to see where the Lord takes you. 
where you never, ever expected to be. It's much more of an adventure than you trying to control everything. And this is my plan. And here's where I'm going to go. The Lord just says, will you trust me? Will you follow me? In John 15, 14 to 17, he says to the disciples, now these are like some of the final words before the cross, you understand. He says to them, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give you these things I command you that you love one another. I love this scripture and I use this a lot in my ministry training and coaching because you see when serving the Lord gets hard, we want to quit. And because there is sacrifice involved, there's absolutely those moments where you say, Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. Do I have to do this? And I love what the Lord said to the disciples. I want you to remember, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Because if you see, if I chose the ministry, then when it's hard, I can just unchoose it. But if the Lord chose me, I have to remember that I'm accountable to him for completing what he gave me to do. But he says, I'm with you. Whatever you ask for what you need in the middle of this calling, I'll give it to you. I'll take care of you. And here's what I want you to know. You're going to be fruitful. Your fruit is going to remain. It's going to be filled with joy. And the primary evidence that people will know you're my disciple is that you love one another. You know why the Lord said, I want you to love one another? Because those disciples argued all the time about who was going to be the greatest. It's not really a discussion. I am. They would argue all the time in their free time when they weren't feeding the thousands, they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. And he says, everyone else can hear you. You know, these people, they can hear you fighting. The evidence to those people that you are really my disciples is that you stop arguing and you start loving each other. Not loving the world or loving non-Christians, but that we Christians love each other. It's easier sometimes to love people out in the world that you don't even know than it is to love people you know really well in the church that irritate you, that don't have their act together yet. And the more we serve together, the more we get to know each other, the more we bother each other, and the more we just have to remember just to trust the Lord. But this is going to absolutely have to be this way if the Lord's going to work here. 
And the interesting thing, I'll just finish up with this, and Matt, you can come up, and we're going to receive communion together. The interesting thing about the love of God. Do you know that even when an unbeliever walks into a church they've never been in before, they can tell right away if the people in that church love each other. They don't even know why. They may never have heard the gospel before, but there's something unique about how we love each other that is so different from out there that they immediately see that something is different here. And Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 14, that even an unbeliever walks in and says, God is in their midst. Do you want that? That was a rhetorical question. Do you want that? Amen. And I think we do have that. But here's the thing. We have to protect it. We have to guard it. Because the more we grow or add ministries or do different things, the more complicated it becomes. The more our fragile little fellowship gets upset and there's risk. We didn't do things that way at our other church. And I don't know why you're doing it that way and all these kinds of things. But we're all growing together and I love that. I love that.